it's not uh, just one or two that are weary. So, the preacher can either preach shorter or preach louder. We'll see how it goes. Um, but turn with me, if you would, to First Thessalonians. I know it's the vacation season. Folks are in and out, and Jan and I certainly were out for a little while. And again, we appreciate your prayers for us during that season. It was a really a precious mixture of some personal vacation time and also some time for uh, ministry and visiting several, three at least in my case, of our churches. So we appreciate your prayers. But as I said last week, I was moved in my preaching for the ordination in Vancouver to preach from First Thessalonians. And then a couple weeks later, arriving in Mexico, uh, found that Reverend Wagner was moved to preach from First Thessalonians, not the same chapter. I preached from chapter 1 to Andrew Fitton, and he preached from chapter 2 to Lalo. But uh, I thought upon coming home that maybe we would finish out these summer weeks with a little mini-series in Thessalonians uh, and then take up our studies in Romans after the vacations and camp and some of the summer weariness was past. Uh, doesn't make it less significant, but just less part of that study. But I want to read the second chapter then together today and consider from it as we meet with the Lord around His Word today. So First Thessalonians chapter 2. For yourselves, brethren, know our entrance in unto you that it was not in vain. But even after that we suffered before and were shamefully entreated, as you know, at Philippi. We were bold in our God to speak unto you the gospel of God with much contention. For our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. But as we were allowed of God to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but God, which trieth our hearts. For neither at any time used we flattering words, as ye know, nor a cloak of covetousness, God is witness. Nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others, when we might have been burdensome as the apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were willing to have imparted unto you not the gospel of God only, but also our own souls, because ye were dear unto us. For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you. We preached unto you the gospel of God. Ye are witnesses, and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe. As you know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you, as a father doth his children, that you would walk worthy of God, who hath called you unto his kingdom and glory. For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when ye received the word of God which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. For ye, brethren, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For ye also have suffered like things of your own countrymen, even as they have of the Jews, who both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets, and have persecuted us, and they please not God, and are contrary to all men, forbidding us to speak to the Gentiles that they might be saved." 
to fill up their sins always, for the wrath has come upon them to the uttermost. But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, not in heart, endeavored the more abundantly to see your face with great desire. Wherefore, we would have come unto you, even I, Paul, once and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at His coming? For ye are our glory and joy. Well, amen. We'll end our reading. We trust again the Lord to add His blessing to the public reading of His Word. Let's bow our heads and hearts together. Our Heavenly Father, we do rejoice. We can sing that we are debtors to mercy alone. And we ask that you might help us today as we read a portion of your word written to a Gentile congregation in a first century world that we used to say almost always that was far more wicked than our own. And yet, Lord, we believe as we've seen such a slide in the last quarter century that our age has come alongside such an age of idolatry, immorality, of reprobation. And we ask for grace, for the help of Your Spirit, that we might manifest gospel truth, not only in word, but in power, as we've read and seen. Preaching and sharing of the gospel that impacts and changes lives. That the glorious grace of our sovereign God might be seen and known in this world. So give us such help, we ask, and prosper our meditations on the chapter we've read today. We ask it in Jesus' worthy name. Amen. As I said, I want for these summer weeks that remain to do a small series here in Paul's correspondence with the Thessalonians. We saw last week and mentioned that Paul was greatly encouraged in this congregation. Evidence of grace abounded in them. The fruit of the Spirit, the real outworking of the gospel was visible, it was tangible in them. Paul had no reservations in saying, witnessing these things, that he knew they were elect of God because of what he saw in the results of his preaching in them. And last week as we just gave that survey of the first chapter, we considered it from these perspectives that the gospel came to the Thessalonians, a little bit about how that came, Paul's preaching itself. But the gospel came to them, they received it, and then it sounded out from them. This was a congregation that bore fruit not only in changed lives, but bore fruit in sharing that good news that had changed their lives with other people. I remember watching a video from the BBC back in the early 80s, I guess it was. It was an investigative reporter that was looking into the life and ministry of Dr. Paisley. And there was a transition at one point in the hour-long broadcast in which he said this. He said, I'll try and quote him. I wasn't planning this, so I'm going to have to reach back into the hard drive. But um, something at least of this nature, he said, it seems to be, I forget the words after that, but let's just say a quality of those that possess eternal life 
that they feel obliged to share it. And uh, he then did a little segment on particular members of the church there that were engaged in evangelism and as lay people in their ministry. And I saw a smile come on Dr. Panosian's face at that comment that the reporter meant to be a little bit of a dig. And, well, his smile was, yes, that's the way it is. But these Thessalonians were so moved, so changed, so joyful that they wanted to spread that good news to those round about them. And so Paul is greatly encouraged in the church at Thessalonica. But as you come to the second chapter, it is quite evident that after Paul left Thessalonica, and if you go back in Acts and read the story, uh, Paul had been opposed by unbelieving Jews. They were stirred in their jealousy, and we may say more about that in a few moments. But they were looking for Paul. They went to the home of Jason, one named Jason, seeking him. They didn't find him, but they brought him to the courts. And they made their hypocritical charges very similar to the ones that they brought against Jesus before Pilate. These people that have turned the world upside down, it's in Thessalonica that the unbelieving Jews coined that phrase, seeking to speak negatively of Paul and of the gospel. But they've come here too. They took security of Jason, and we read there that the believers in Thessalonica take Paul and Silas and they scurry them by night out of town. They seek to protect and to preserve them. And so Paul has left Thessalonica in that way. And it seems that his detractors and the unbelieving Jews that were speaking against him were spreading false thoughts and rumors about him. Some of those seem apparent from what we see in this chapter. Where's Paul gone? He ran away. And Paul has to say at the end, twice we've endeavored to get back to you and have been unable. Satan has hindered us. But here... These that were antagonistic to the gospel. These that were jealous of the attention and the acclaim of the Gentiles in Thessalonica are fighting against Paul. And in this book, 1 Thessalonians 2 and then chapter 3, Paul engages in some of the most open uh, apology, if you will, for his ministry uh, than anywhere else in the New Testament. He had to answer charges and speak in the same way in many ways to the Corinthians. But here he just puts it out there. Paul speaks of himself, who he was, what he had done. And he calls upon the Thessalonians, you're witnesses of this. Think through the charges. And then think through what we did when we were there. And as Paul does that in this chapter, he puts himself forth to the Thessalonians under four metaphors. Some of them are named and others are implied, but he speaks of himself to the Thessalonians as a steward, as a mother, as a father, and then also as a herald. And I want to take those four pictures of himself that Paul gives as our pattern for thought today as we run through this second chapter in 1 Thessalonians. So firstly... A steward. Now Paul doesn't use the title a steward, but if you look here from verse 3 and 4, he says, Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile, but as we were allowed of God 
to be put in trust with the gospel, even so we speak. To be put in trust with something is to take the position, to take the office of a steward. We speak of a stewardship. That is what Paul has received of God. He's a steward. He's a servant of God to take this gospel with which he's been entrusted and proclaim it to the world. And as Paul speaks of himself then as a steward, as one put in trust with the gospel, he notes that he's called to please then who? He's not called to please men. He's called to please God. God has given him the stewardship. Now there's some men that will receive that. They'll recognize the stewardship. They'll recognize and receive the gospel. As he phrases it elsewhere. The gospel is to some a savor of life unto life. There are other men to whom it's a savor of death unto death. They don't want it. They hear it. They push it aside. But Paul says, however men receive it. I'm not a steward of men. I'm a steward of God. And as that steward, I've come to you. Now I want to focus on verse 3. Because Paul here, in giving us some negations, shows in some ways the type of charges that these unbelieving Jews have brought against him. So in verse 3 again we read, Our exhortation was not of deceit, nor of uncleanness, nor in guile. And I want to focus on these three terms, these negations, as we see him as a steward. Not of deceit. Paul brought the word by revelation. Paul brought truth to the Thessalonians. He hadn't made a story up. He wasn't trying to convince them of an untruth for personal advantage. Rather, if you go back to Acts 17 and you see his ministry there as in other places, he most commonly went to the synagogue where there were the open readings of the Old Testament Scriptures. He, as one trained in the law, would have been called upon to give a reading, to give an exhortation. And as he did so, he opened the Old Testament Scriptures, and we have the phrase there by Luke and Acts, opening and alleging. He was carefully dealing with what the Old Testament Scriptures said. He gave the sense of those very words. That's not deception. That's not making up a story. We spoke last week in chapter 1, that little phrase we had charged Brother Fitton with in his ordination. Our gospel came not unto you in word only, but in power and the Holy Ghost and in much assurance. And one of the points I sought to make to him, you got those three bullet points that just jump out. Power, the Holy Ghost, much assurance. But it's a four-point message, not three, because he said, our gospel came not to you in word only. That's really the primary way in which it came. Well, Paul's reflecting that here. I wasn't coming as a deceiver. I hadn't made up something of my own. We were plainly giving you what God has said. And so he's able and eager to put before him, that's how it was. It wasn't deceit. 
And he says also not of uncleanness. Now this is a general term. It really has reference to sensuality. But it's not necessarily limited to sexual sin. That's possible and some suggest that this was among the accusations that the unbelieving Jews made of Paul because it would have been common for traveling salesmen, traveling preachers, and sellers of snake oil and whatever else. I don't know if snake is an essential oil or not, but I have digressed too far. But it wouldn't have been uncommon for immorality to be part of the activities of these traveling salesmen in those days. But sensuality, you can think of that even in the sense of other appeasement and use of the senses. Greed. Certainly for many, greed as something fleshly was part of their work as they traveled from town to town. But it wasn't true of Paul. And you'll see that evidently in the second of his metaphors where he even speaks about not receiving things of them. So he didn't come in uncleanness. You know, we read elsewhere in Peter and also in Jude of the work of false teachers. And one of the things it says of them, these are sensual, having not the spirit. They allure, he said, through the lusts of the flesh. And how often do we find, and sometimes it begins to creep even into Bible-believing evangelical circles. There's a fleshly part of the presentation. There's something of sensuality, and perhaps it's even excused as saying, well, we, we need to get the world's attention. We need to have something that will bring them in. Well, that's what follows on from his third description here. He says, nor in deceit. That's a word actually that's used elsewhere of bait in fishing. Now think about that. Think about how easily even a, a Bible believer could drift toward that. We've got to have some bait, something to get them in, and then we can get them. We can give them the gospel, get them saved. Could we make a list of different types of bait that have been used in our lifetime and our experience? And some of these things are somewhat difficult to work through. But maybe we can get some athletic star that's well known who gets saved and we'll bring him in and people will come to hear that guy and then he can give his testimony and then we'll, the preacher will preach after that. It'll be great. Or maybe we can have some type of entertainment. Get people in. I was reading a book probably approaching 30 years ago now on the front end of the seeker-sensitive movement, which I guess is old news and old terminology. What was purported to be a means of getting the unchurched in. One of the men and a writer of this book was an acquaintance of my father-in-law. We just celebrated his 
10th anniversary of his home going yesterday, the family. He had challenged him. And I read this book and I actually knew that it was Jan's dad that had challenged this man, but he didn't name him. But he mentioned that in the book. He said, you know, we were using rock and roll, not just Christian rock. We were using secular rock to get people in. And I was challenged by a a Christian leader uh, about the error of this. And we, we stopped for a little while and attendance plummeted. So we went back to it. could quote other things from later in the book sobering stuff indeed but you know when you have to put bait out there ultimately the bait doesn't become just the advertisement to get people in it it becomes the content and then what you're supposed to be giving people once you get them in gets lost if they're not there to hear the preaching of the gospel if they're not there understanding that what they're going to get is the preaching and application of truth, then what have you accomplished if they're there? You've raised a crowd. It was interesting, the Barna Research Group, 10 years after the publication of that book and others like it in the seeker-sensitive movement, confessed, looking statistically, that what was purported to get the unchurched into church had not gotten the unchurched into church. The numbers were flat and actually drifting downward a little bit. It was just they had changed the character of the church. The local congregation had shifted and died off and the megachurch had become the norm and all the accoutrements of that. You'd think about that even if the motives were pure. Look at the results. What have we accomplished? Are we getting the unchurched in or are we changing what we do? Paul didn't operate that way. And this bait that he speaks of is translated here deceit. It's a sober thing. Paul was a steward. And as we read elsewhere, what's demanded of a steward is that he be found faithful. But the second metaphor that he uses, beginning in verse 5, is that of a mother. He speaks of things that weren't true of him. And then in verse 7, he says, in contrast to that, but we were gentle among you, even as a nurse cherisheth her children. A mother. A nursing mother of an infant. This is a striking metaphor. Few examples could express more clearly a posture of affection and love than this. When we think of the nursing mother, think of all the things that come along with it. As he phrases it even here, gentle among you. The tenderness, the love that is evident And then we add to that self-denial and sacrifice. Those of you mothers in our midst could perhaps rise and give testimony. There may have been seasons where feeding the baby, cuddling and comforting the child at 2 p.m., a precious moment at 2 a.m., 
a weary labor of love. And yet, lovingly done. And Paul comes in under this metaphor and speaks of himself about that tenderness, about that love, about that self-denial, about that sacrifice. Paul had actually, if you read the preceding verses from verse 5, neither at any time use we flattering words, as you know, nor a cloak of covetous God is witness, nor of men sought we glory, neither of you nor yet of others. And when we might have been burdensome, we might have been supported, received from you, we didn't. Now Paul wasn't saying here that it's wrong for him to be supported. He received support, financial support from other churches. He teaches on the necessity and on the the good portion of labor that is just as the Old Testament. Even so, the Lord ordained those which preach the gospel should live of the gospel. He's not saying preachers shouldn't be supported by the people. He's saying, in your case, you look at all the context here. I wasn't taking anything from you. We purposed not to. And so Paul in Thessalonica, as in other places, Corinth among them, labored with his own hands. Used the skill and craft that he had as a tent maker or a leather worker to support himself and his team in their midst. And I think it's interesting because if you look at the context, the Thessalonian believers were not impoverished. They actually, we read in Acts, there were noble people that were among these believers in Thessalonica. Even it says of the noble women, not a few. It's a question I try and sneak in and Acts in one of the quizzes or tests for the students because you can read of Corinth and you see not many mighty, not many noble are called. They were from the lower regions of the economic ladder, rungs of the economic ladder there in Corinth, but some of the people in Thessalonica were from the upper rungs. So it wasn't because of their inability. Maybe it was because of the fact that some were wealthy, that he didn't take their money. So it wouldn't appear that he was trying to pull from them. But he said, no, rather than living and being like this, being served by you, we were as a mother, totally giving of self to serve you. And then Paul turns the metaphor to that of a father. From verses 9 to 12, we read here, For ye remember, brethren, our labor and travail, for laboring night and day, because we would not be chargeable unto any of you, we preached unto you the gospel of God. Your witnesses and God also, how holily and justly and unblameably we behaved ourselves among you that believe, as ye know how we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you as a father doth his children. There are a lot of pieces of that here, and we can't pause on every term. But that little trio that he puts in front of the explicit metaphor of fatherhood, that we exhorted and comforted and charged every one of you. The first word exhorted actually is used elsewhere and is, carries along with it something of encouragement. 
Because if we come to the third of these where he says charged, we often use the word exhort in a similar way. It's a, it's a charge, it's admonition, but there's comfort that's involved in this opening term. Fatherly help. And you think of that in the home. You think of the tender child, you think of the, the growing child, the adolescent child, the child that's on the borders of adulthood, and the encouragements that are needed to go out into life. And how often that is the role of the father, the fatherly help of encouragement. And then he speaks of comfort. We encouraged, comforted. This is a verb that's used elsewhere of the faint-hearted, and it's used even of those that are bereaved. People that are in desperate need of comfort, people that are experiencing hardship and struggle. And as a father, Paul's mindful of their struggle. He's mindful of the hardships because the opposition that came at Thessalonica wasn't just focused on him. You remember last week as we saw in the first chapter that striking thing that they received the gospel in much affliction. The unbelieving Jews were antagonistic. They were offended. They went on the offensive against believers and Paul. They received it in much affliction with joy of the Holy Ghost. And Paul calls on them as witnesses to be mindful that he comforted them. He wasn't unmindful of the afflictions they were enduring. And as a father, he comes alongside. And finally, he says he charged them as a father. This father that is engaged in comfort and encouragement doesn't ignore reality in his encouragements. Just as a father in training up a son to go out into the world. Encouragement, comfort, but you don't lie to him about what's out there. You don't lie to him about, well, the sweat of the brow and the thorns that are all part of life here on this earth after the curse of sin. And he charges them and he speaks to them here in that charge that they would walk worthy of God. And I want to just pause on that. We've taught a lot over the years. I trust the Lord will give us grace to continue doing so. Making the gospel, the person and work of Christ, the solas, justification, and understanding of the details of the gospel to be the focus of our ministry and touching everything else. Well, in a church that's wrestled with its understanding of the gospel and its details, in a modern American evangelical church that, with its misunderstanding of the law and the gospel, pendulum swings back and forth between various expressions of antinomianism and legalism, of self-righteousness and worldliness. I think this example and admonition of a father charging his children to walk worthy of God is a place to pause. The modern church, many segments of it anyway, 
and a misunderstanding of the law and the gospel, a misunderstanding of the doctrines of grace, of what we speak of as life-changing grace, can't bring together an unconditional love, a gospel of free and sovereign grace, and then yet it being incumbent upon believers to live differently. To walk worthy of God as we read in this example. Think of that in the context of the family. I mean, apply the theology, and we can't take time to rehearse it all again today, but the theology, we're working through that in Romans, in the context of the illustration of a family. Think of the father sitting with his children. You are mine. We belong to one another. We are a family. That will never change. You are loved in this family. No matter what. That will never change. We are here for you when nobody else is. I, particularly as your dad, I'm going to be here for you when others aren't. And all the assurance and the comfort and of course in the Gospel, the unconditional favor, the unmerited favor, that gracious adoption into that family where we're loved and where it'll never change. Now the father can tell the same children gathered around him to whom he's given these assurances, these comforts. Now, in this family, this is the way we do things. Why is it so hard to understand and apply that in a gospel of grace? If the law is God's definition of right and wrong, in pushing that law away as a covenant of works, as we so often phrase it with the Puritans, and yet that very same law cherishing it and running hard after it as a rule of life because it still is the definition of right and wrong. It's in the context of fatherhood all the love and acceptance that that metaphor brings, that he says as a father, he exhorts them, he charges them to walk worthy of God, who's called you into his kingdom and glory. Precious comforts, real charges indeed. And then lastly, when we come to the closing verses from verse 13 to the end, Paul speaks of himself as a herald. A herald is one that proclaims. And as you read these verses again, there's really a lot of wealth here with regard even to our doctrine of inspiration. Now it's not as explicit, say, as 2 Peter, uh, 1 John as we have some of those definitive texts with regard to the inspiration of Scripture, that it is breathed out of God. 
But he says to them, for this cause also thank we God, verse 13, without ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard of us, here's the herald, heralding the word of God and not his own. He received it, not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. And so the herald is one giving God's word. And the Thessalonians had received it. They had understood it as God's word. And all of these pieces of Paul's display, he's not trying to persuade them of something that isn't true. He's not trying to convince them of something they didn't witness, that they saw something different. What he's saying is, you're hearing these charges from the unbelieving Jews. What did you see? What really happened when we were there? We heralded God's Word, not our own. And you received it as God's Word and not ours. And after he speaks of this ministry of the herald, we find really some awful description of unbelieving New Testament Judaism. These here, like the churches in Judea, suffered like things of what they had received of their own countrymen. And he speaks of the Jews who have, verse 15, both killed the Lord Jesus and their own prophets have persecuted us. They please not God and are contrary to all men. Now let us pause. Paul isn't beginning to engage here in some form of anti-Semitism. He's a Jew. It's not a racial thing that he's talking about here. It's a truth thing. The believing Jews, Paul loved. You can go and we'll find in Romans, they even have a special place in his heart. But the unbelieving Jews, as we've read also in Romans, who have been so privileged and have sinned against that privilege, have sinned against light, have sinned against great light. He follows on and speaks of them filling up wrath, filling up their sins, wrath coming upon them to the uttermost. Sober, sober words indeed. But Paul says, no, you you know, when we were there, we heralded truth. We heralded God's word, not our own. The unbelief and venom that's coming from these, we've noted this before, but in the synagogues, there were those that, and the synagogues were the meeting places of the Jews of the dispersion. The temple is in Jerusalem only until in the providence of God in A.D. 70, even that is taken away. But there were Gentiles that were frankly impressed with the Jews. Their lives were different. Their homes were different. You see how culturally immorality had so wrecked their societies. There was something different about these people. And they were on the fringes of the synagogues. They couldn't become full members. They weren't Jews. But the Jews were... Happy for this attention. 
And it was among some of these Gentiles tearing around the borders, as it were, of the synagogues that some of the first converts in the New Testament were drawn. And the jealousy of the Jews. Interestingly, isn't it always the case? You want to get at your enemy, accuse him of the very thing you're doing? It was of men they were seeking glory. All this Paul, he's just a glory seeker. Paul says, you were there. Is that what happened? All this Paul, he's just after your money. You were there. Is that what happened? No. And as Paul speaks and uses these metaphors, a steward, a mother, a father, a herald, there's actually a chiastic arrangement to them. The steward is first, the herald is last. These have reference to the Word. The mother, second, the father, third, next to each other in the middle. These have reference to people. And if you think even of those, what is the steward? He's to protect the stewardship that he's given. What is the herald? He's to proclaim the Word that he's given. The mother, focus in the home on love. The father, focus there in the home, yes, on love, but on teaching, of guiding. All these pieces of the Word and of the people, of the role that the minister of the Gospel played to them. Paul says, you were there. These accusations are false. Look at what you received. Look at how it's impacted the lives of so many among you. Don't be pulled away from the purity and the power of this gospel. Well, I trust the Lord will bless His Word to us. Even these four pictures of Paul and of rightful gospel living and gospel ministry. Let's bow our heads and our hearts together. Oh Lord, we pray that as we've read and hurried through these verses that Paul uses to encourage the Thessalonians in the reality of gospel ministry, that all the pieces of that would be true of us in this pulpit and in these seats, and that like Thessalonica, we would receive the word. Lord, we have not received it in affliction. Perhaps such days await us, but may we know the joy of the Holy Ghost. And may the Word, the Word received, ministered to us, even through all these pictures of trustworthiness, of love and acceptance and charge, that as in Thessalonica, the Word would sound forth from us, that our faith would be spoken of. And so let it be true. Help us in it. And prosper the word we've read today. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.